Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for listening, tuning in. Before I introduce our guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast, A Gift from Adversity, which is available on Amazon. A Gift from Adversity's subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. After I published my book, I realized that there are so many people who had been through the same adversity as me. And this year, I decided to start a podcast to create a platform where people can talk about adversity and normalize difficult conversation and share the tools that we use to overcome together. Today, I'm very excited to have our guest, Damon Davis. Thank you so much for coming to A Gift from Adversity. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jury. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So can you tell our audience who you are, your name, if you have a website, social media, and what you do? Of course. So again, I'm Damon Davis. I'm the host of the Who Am I Really podcast. I'm an adopted person, and I spend my time interviewing other adopted people about their adoptions and their attempts to find their biological family members. You can find the Who Am I Really podcast at whoamireallypodcast.com. You can find me on Instagram at Damon, D-A-M-O-N-L Davis, or at W-A-I Really for at Who Am I Really. So at W-A-I Really, that's me. Wonderful. So let's dive into the first question, which is the adversity. Can you tell our audience, what was your adversity? My adversity is living through adoption. And by that, I mean separation from one's biological parents. It's something that most people don't really think about as an adversity because I think a lot of folks assume that all adoptions are amazing rescues of a child in need. And while I did grow up in a wonderful family, uh, I don't think it should be lost that the reason that I was adopted is because my birth mother felt like she couldn't take care of me and therefore placed me for adoption with other parents. So I think it's important to sort of underscore that um, you know, the best place for any child is with their parents. Uh, but, but, you know, it's important to recognize that there's not always a way to make that happen. And so the separation of a child and their mother is an important thing to sort of really examine and understand what the impacts are. And it's different for different people. So I'll stop there. So let's dissect the part that... Um... I've never really talked to somebody who was adopted. I know a few people, but you are the first guest on my podcast talking mm -hmm. about this issue, um, deep dive into. So what year, what age did you realize that you are adopted and your parents are not your, your biological parents? Yeah, my parents told me from an early age that I was adopted. And so I grew up with the fact in my mind. And in many ways, that helped me to gain comfort in recognizing that adoption was okay. Further, my parents and I kind of looked like we could have been family. My mother was a little bit light-skinned, and my dad was more dark-skinned, and I'm more middle-brown. So as a black man, I kind of looked like I could have been their child, which was also comforting. And the reason I raised that is because I've interviewed over 180 people for the Who Am I Really podcast. And some of them have been transracial adoptees. Some of them have been um, mixed race people. And so there's a lot of identity issues that coincide with how you look and the mirroring that happens in your family or does not. 
So I had some relative pieces of mirroring in that I looked like I could have been my parents, but things could have been very different for me had I had we looked drastically different. So I've always known I was adopted, and I've, I think that I am one of the lucky people who was fortunate to have grown up with that fact. So early means like maybe three years old, four years old. Probably earlier than that. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was probably three or four. Yeah, that seems like that would be about right. But were you calling your adopted parents, mom and dad? Absolutely. They were and are mom and dad. There's no question about it. And even though I'm in reunion with my biological parents individually, the people who raised me are 100% my mom and dad. That's Veronica and Willie, my, my parents. That's very heartwarming to hear. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that it's an important thing to think through that the people who are there with you every single day and do the job, and, you know, for those who do it well, an adopted person will absolutely feel that those people are their parents. They're there for the sick days. They're there for the sports triumphs. They're there for the theater performances. They are there for the college admission and every sort of life event that happens. They're there. And, you know, we don't always do it right. You're a parent. I'm a parent. I make some mistakes. You've made some mistakes. It has nothing to do with whether that chi your child is adopted or not. That's just how life is. We don't necessarily know how to raise our kids. And adoptive parents will also make some mistakes. And, and I think that things can look more complex through the lens of adoption. But in many cases, there's a lot of people out there who feel like their adopted family is their family. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's totally appropriate. So growing up, I know you said you knew it at early stage. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then you kind of mentioned a little bit of struggle. Can you tell our audience maybe as early as you can remember if there's any mental health, like a struggle, self-doubt, um, those kind of issues that you had experienced? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was something that adopted people call coming out of the fog, which is a loose term for the stark realization that you are adopted, meaning that you have parents whom you've grown up with, but there are two completely separate people out in the world somewhere that you don't know that you are biologically related to. And that can be a real eye-opening experience for an adopted person. I was lucky. It didn't happen for me until I was 36 years old. But I got to tell you, when it hits you, it hits you hard. It's a very, very challenging thing to push back or suppress in your mind when you make this connection to the fact that you're a stranger to your own biological family. Um, there's no real good way to get through that except for trying to push through and find some answers for yourself. And that can be a challenging thing for many people. I was fortunate in that my adoptive family expressed that they were okay with me searching. My adoptive mom had always told me from when I was a kid that she would help me search. But one of the things that was challenging for me was my adoptive mother began to suffer mental illness. She had paranoid schizophrenia, ended up developing dementia, and I was petrified that when I decided to search for my biological mother at the age of 36, after the birth of my son, who was conceived magically after a couple of rounds of uh, assisted pregnancy attempts and things like that, you know, my son was conceived naturally, and he was the first leaf on my own biological tree that I ever knew, and I, we made him together. So to go back to my adopted mother, I was really, really scared that she was not going to support my search for my biological mother as her mental capacity decreased. Uh, but fortunately, she was able to pull it to herself together and provide me some documentation that was instrumental in helping me find my biological mother. So it was really amazing. So when you were a teenager, 
And then when you're going through puberty and then, you know, all this hormone change and school and then a lot of kids in middle school, high school, they really suffer with self-doubt or self-search, um, bullying, just social peer like pressures and stuff. Were you teased at some point that you adopted or like, you know, did you struggle with some of the bullying or any stigma around it? I I was fortunate in that I did not, but I know many, many people who did. And, you know, the very first guest on my show is one of my best friends in life. His name's Andre. And Andre told me the story of he is also an adopted person. He knew another adopted person at his elementary school when he was a kid. And when this kid revealed that he was adopted, the other kids on the schoolyard bullied him, told him, you know, your mom didn't want you and all kinds of awful things. And when my friend Andre saw this happen to that kid, he kept his mouth shut. He decided he was never talking about his adoption to anybody. And he said it wasn't until he saw me speaking openly about my adoption, comfortably revealing it to people that he recognized that it was okay to do so. And that wasn't for many years until he was in high school. But I did have people frequently ask me, well, don't you want to find your quote unquote real mom? Like I said, the real mom is the one who did the job every single day. Right. So I think it's a little bit of a misnomer for those who are not in the adoption, what we call triad to say that someone else that I don't know is my real mom. She's my biological mother. My real mother is the person who raised me. But I did have people push me frequently to say, you know, don't you want to find your real mom? Aren't you curious? Things along those lines. And those are the kinds of questions that do cast a little doubt or spark some curiosity in an adopted person's mind if they didn't have it already. Some people have it from earlier ages. There are folks who I've spoken to on the show that have said things like, you know, the classic family tree project that a child goes through in elementary school where they're mapping out what DNA traits they might have. And if your parents both have blue eyes, you're likely to have blue eyes and this kind of thing. And tell us where your family tree comes from. What countries are people from on your family tree? And it can be triggering for an adopted person to know factually that the parents that they call mom and dad are not actually branches on their biological family tree that they would be documenting something in this school project that's not accurate there's other triggers for example um, almost i can't think of an adoptee who wouldn't say something along the lines of when i would go to the doctor's office and they would ask me about my family history i couldn't tell them i would have to say i'm sorry i don't know i'm adopted and so those kinds of things can be very triggering for somebody as a reminder of how your life started. And, you know, as you as many adopted people traverse the journey of trying to find themselves and sometimes trying to find their biological parents in reunion, they'll often think about um, how challenging it might be to even search for these people and what's called secondary rejection. Are these folks going to actually want me to come back? And, and there's a whole set of stories that, that coincide with that. So there's a lot of little triggers of adversity that happen along your life as an adoptee, and they come at different ages and different stages for a variety of reasons. Thank you very much for sharing that. And then I didn't realize that those doctor's questions can be a trigger. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a gang of triggers out there. It's, like I said, the family school project, the doctor thing. One of the things that I've had many of my female guests say are things like, you know, they realized at, you know, their teenage years, you know, as a woman, you can produce a child. And then the question becomes, if I'm going to bring a child into this world, what is my own DNA contributing to this person I'm going to create? And do I need to know about certain chronic diseases, you know? medical abnormalities, whatever the things are that your DNA is contributing to someone, mental health issues, what have you, it's hard for people to consider conceiving a child and not knowing what you're bringing to the table in terms of what that child could 
turn out to have to live with. Um, so a lot of parents will say things like, I was really concerned about conceiving children for the genetic contributions that I might make. So Damon, let me ask you this. How do you think this um, childhood, teenage, uh, the fact that you know that you adopted contributed to your adult life? You know, like I said, knowing I was adopted, I felt like everything was okay. I grew up fairly well-adjusted, middle-class home, lots of friends, great life. But it's the kind of thing where I, I can recall times when I would see a child out in public and – I would see what looked like a mismatch between the child and the, and the adult that they were with, who I assumed was their parent. And I would automatically think, I wonder if that person's adopted like me. Right. And again, the biggest thing I think was creating a family. You don't know what you're contributing to the mix when you're conceiving your son. And it was also, an incredibly emotional and eye-opening moment when my son was born. I had the good fortune actually of being home with him. I was unluckily unlucky to be laid off from work, but fortunately my wife was able to carry the family nicely and I was able to be home with my son. And this again was the first biological biological relative that I had ever met in my entire life. And we created this guy. And I was home with him one day, and he's kind of laying on his back, and I'm hovering over him. He's on, a, on an ottoman in front of me, and he's looking up at me, and I'm looking down at him wondering, like, who is this kid going to turn into? What is he going to be like? And it really washed over me that that was the first biological relative I had ever known my entire life, and I'm 36 years old. And that was an eye-opening moment of making me really realize I wanted to know more about what was out there and and it started to make me focus on more things so another thing that happened was my father-in-law was in town and he took us to visit some relatives of his and this elderly woman sat down and she pulls out a shoe box and a file and she spreads out all of these family artifacts articles and pictures and things like that and as i'm watching this elderly woman basically tell the tales of the family. She was the griot, the storyteller. She could tell, she could identify where everybody in the family was at any year of everyone's life. And it was in that moment that I sat there watching her that I realized if any other person sat down and spread the same artifacts out the same way, nobody could weave the history together the way that that woman did. And I realized there's probably a storyteller, a griot, an elderly person in my family who knows where all the stories are, where all the secrets are buried, where my aunts, aunts and uncles and cousins have ever been. And as this woman is in the autumn of her years, so too is the person that I should be looking for in my family. And I realized I didn't want to miss out on an opportunity to get to know that person, get to know those stories, connect to that family history. And so that was kind of how adoption played out in my adulthood is that almost rude awakening of, yo, you got to get on the stick, man. There's there's people out there that you need to find and they're not going to be here forever and you need to start trying. You mentioned about the second shockwave. You mentioned about, you know, when they do actually reunite with their biological parents later in their life. That they yeah. will be maybe rejected, those kind of fear. So, how was it like finally that you met your biological parents? Yeah, I did. Was that? Um, it was uh, ups and downs, and most people know who know my story know the ups, and I don't. It's not. It's can get lost that there were some downs. So, the short version is, I happened to be in between jobs. And I was waiting for a confirmation to join the Obama administration, and I was able to get employment at the Department of Health and Human Services in 2009 in D Washington, D.C. Coincidentally, right before that was that moment that I sat there hovering over my son thinking I need to find my biological relative. So I started a search for my birth mother that prior summer. 
in doing so, um, I unlocked everything by reaching out to my social worker. She was able to find my biological mother who had intentionally retained her maiden name so that she could be found. She had also coincidentally stayed in the D.C. area. She had lived around the world but moved back coincidentally and happened to be working in downtown Washington, D.C., only two blocks away from me when I found her. And so I had a wonderful reunion with her, and I surprised her at her office on her birthday for a teary, hug-filled, amazing reunion. Um, she told me she was an open book, and she's so naturally well, I did what anybody would do. I asked her who my biological father was, and she told me that it was this gentleman who had been a police officer in the city of Detroit when she was in graduate school. But I sensed the pain in her voice as she said that, and I said, you know what? I don't need to find this guy. She told me a little bit of the story. He wasn't very kind to her, and he didn't help her when she revealed that she was pregnant. As a matter of fact, she was dating him, and she didn't realize that he was married. So she, unbeknownst to her, had gotten pregnant as part of an extramarital affair. So I didn't look for this guy. And then unfortunately, my birth mother, Anne, passed away about six years after I met her. So the piece that I think gets lost for folks in my story is I sought this guy out after her death. I realized I couldn't hurt her now that she was gone. And I was curious. It takes two people to make another person. And I wanted to know who this other guy was. I found him, and I had no connection to him whatsoever. Just with my birth mother, I felt an instant rapport, an instant connection. We were definitely kin to each other. And with this guy, I just I felt nothing. He was brash and loud and demanding and overbearing and just all of the things that are repulsive to me. And um, I let our relationship die. And then I reached out to him one day to suggest that we meet. I realized, you know what? As I said, it takes two. And you shouldn't go through this life and not have ever come face to face with this man who presumably uh, was part of the equation for why you're here. And he reached back to me and he said, listen, I'm not the guy. And I was like, <laughs> well, I know how this works. And she said you were. So, but it hadn't occurred to me that he could be right. And so um, I got a piece of that sort of secondary rejection, the, th the thought that you've found your biological father and that you at least know where to go to see him and to perhaps shake his hand, even if perhaps you're not going to have an ongoing relationship. Uh, but to be turned away, it was funny. My wife could see my face when I read the note that, he had written to me. He dropped it in the in the mail, and I had picked up the mail that day from the post office. and And I read this note, and she said that, you know, she looked at my face, and it looked like the kind of face that you see when a kid almost doesn't get the gift that they want at Christmas. Just a true disappointment. And I I tried to play it down and act like it didn't bother me, but it did. I was I was hurt because I know I'm a good person, and. I know that I have a lot to contribute to a relationship with somebody, and it just kind of sucked that somebody kind of said, I don't really want to know you. You know, It was really hard. Uh, but fortunately, that story took a positive turn when I was able to find my biological father completely accidentally. So, Well, thank you so much for telling me that. I feel like watching a movie. <laughs> oh, that's is. what a lot of adoptee stories are like mm. yeah did your mom tell you why she decided to do adoption she did so she revealed to me that her own older sister had gotten pregnant before Ann did so Ann is my biological mother her sister had gotten pregnant a couple of years before. And when she got pregnant, she went home to their house on the Eastern shore of Maryland and she revealed it to the family. And her father basically said, you get out of here. You go, don't come home until you're married to that guy who is the father of your child. 
And my mom, Ann, witnessed how her own sister was treated. And then several years later found herself pregnant and unmarried. And prior to that, she had failed out of college. So presumably had disappointed her parents already. Now she had paid her way through college, gotten herself to grad school, yet still had, quote unquote, made the mistake of getting pregnant and found herself in a position of being unmarried like her sister had been years before. So, uh, again, she was she got pregnant by a guy who was in a marital extramarital affair. The man was a police officer. And when Ann called the police precinct to try to talk to this guy. The police operator said, oh, is is this his wife calling? And it was then that she knew that she was in big trouble. So she called her girlfriend, who was a, happened to be a social worker in Baltimore City, and said, basically, I can only imagine the conversation was like, girl, I'm in serious trouble. And so her girlfriend, Pat, had her come out to Baltimore, got her on social services, and they made an adoption plan to have me placed. And it's an interesting thing that I've come to realize we have to be really careful about how we think about adoption because there's a lot of heroism associated with adopting a child, right? It feels like you're a savior to someone. And, and it's rewarding. And I, I'm an adoptive parent myself. And so I get it that you really want to do everything you can to place love on these children and support them in growing up. But it's important to also remember that the reason that child is with an adoptive parent is because of some level of adversity. And it comes from both sides. As in my story, my birth mother had gotten pregnant accidentally in an extramarital affair and found herself by herself and not feeling like she could care for a child. Adoption, the adoption plan started from a not so positive place. On the adoptive parent side, it often starts from a not-so-positive place either. I've spoken to many adoptees on the podcast who will say, my parents couldn't conceive a child. Um, all kinds of, you know, someone was infertile, they had conceived a child and had many miscarriages and, and you know, babies and children had died. There's all this sadness on the adoptive parent side as well. And so there's a lot to each story that precedes the moment where the child is placed with the family. The family has gone through something that usually such that they feel that they need to adopt. And the child has gone through something such that they have been separated from their biological family and placed in another family. So I say all of that to underscore that adoption can be an amazing thing. And I think it's important that we continue to support every child that needs a home to go to. And it needs to be a loving, caring, open home where they talk about adoption. But it's important to recognize that it doesn't necessarily start from this awesome, positive place. I've never spoken to any guest on my show who said, when I found my birth parents, you know what they said? Uh, everything was going great. We just decided to put you up for adoption. It's never that. It's always some level of adversity that initiates the reason why someone is placed for adoption. Absolutely. And I just want to let you know that um, I'm from Japan. And Japanese culture is very thick about family, divorce. There's so much stigma about divorce. Forget about adoption. Mm -hmm. I've never seen adopted kid. I've never seen or heard a story of adoption. I think the concept itself is such a huge stigma because right. our country is 4,000 years thick history of family trees, shogun era, like all this. Pedigree. Yeah. It's a last name itself has history. Yes. So even if you marry to, say, my mom's case, my mom's side is the last name is coming from the shogun family tree. And my father's um, last name is coming from farmer's tree. And then it says in the Chinese character, 
So they don't even like try to mix. Sometimes there's a stigma around it too. Mm-hmm. Now, think about adoption, bringing in to your family for a complete strange blood. That is kind of taboo, no, yep. no uh, culture. So I've never heard of it growing up. And yep. the only time that I heard about adoption itself was when I came to this country and then started to meet people who are actually adopted. And I never talked to somebody about this. And I really think some of the countries are incredibly hard to be adopted or become adopting adoptive parents as well. Yeah. So how do you say in America, I know that maybe when you are growing up and then right now, 2022, stigma has lessened. Maybe it's still the same. Do you think there are some stigma around adoption issues in this country as much as Japan or it's more advanced? It's funny. As you were speaking, I was thinking about how different adoption is in different cultures around the world from what I've experienced. So to go back to what you were saying in Asian cultures, I've spoken to some Asian adoptees. They are people who were brought over as children or as infants from Asia to America and were adopted here. And they corroborated what you said that um, their mother who was pregnant out of wedlock, it was seen as shameful that she had been with this man from this um this you know sort of caste in society or what have you or that they were unmarried at all and basically the fact that they were perceived to be a bastard in society made the child itself a pariah there's there was no place for that child in society because basically their name as you've said was not attached to some family tree Um, In an appropriate fashion, there was shame behind how they were conceived, what their family lineage would end up looking like. There's just no place for them. And it's it's but it's different in some other cultures where a lot of times in the black community domestically, in the Caribbean, in many Hispanic and Latino cultures, uh, the folks don't even think twice about taking a child in the family and doing what's called a kinship adoption. You know, if a parent dies or leaves or whatever, for whatever reason, a child is not able to be taken care of by their biological parents, auntie, uncle, grandma, just to accept the child. It's just come on over here, baby. You live here now. Right. And it just happens very naturally. Um, And then in, in, in America, And I don't have a whole lot of experience in Europe, but my sense is there's a lot of the same because I've heard stories of um, what is called the baby scoop era, which is there was a lot of pressure for people to have sort of 2.5 children and a dog. And if you weren't able to conceive a kid, you were viewed poorly in society. And so people were adopting and a lot of folks adopted out of pressure to have a certain appearance is what the adoptees have told me. And so all that to say adoption is very different in a lot of global cultures. And in America, I think what's happening right now in 2022 is there's this huge awakening and sort of very vocal movement about adoption, especially because the internet and the way that you and I are connecting from two different places now allows this democratization of information and opinions. And I can get on the microphone and share my adoption experience where before, you know, pre-internet days or what have you, you were very stifled in how you were able to get your opinion out about what you had been through. And it was not widely accepted that an adoptee would have an opinion about their adoption or have uh, feelings about the the fact that they had no choice in the adoption process. So if you think about it, the biological parent has said, I have chosen not to parent this child. And 
the adoptive parents have said, I would like to parent a child and the child is moved from one family to the other without any, there's no real consultation to the child as to where they would like to go. And, and you know, obviously you can't ask an infant where they would like to go, but I suspect their cries would probably tell you that they would like to be with their biological mother. So I say all that to say that now that the internet and podcasts and blogs and vlogs and all kinds of, you know, Twitter and Instagram are allowing people to express themselves in all kinds of free creative ways. There's an enormous explosion of adopted people, of birth parents who are speaking out about their experiences in adoption. And it flies in the face of what we had traditionally accepted was what adoption looks like, that Annie gets rescued by Daddy Warbucks and lives in a mansion or, you know, that, you know, different strokes and family ties and all. The, I mean, not family ties, the other one that I'm thinking of. There's all these different versions of where these children are somehow rescued and family life is fairly awesome. And it's not like that. My guests will tell you that some of them will say, you know, I don't even know why my parents adopted a child. I don't I don't think they should have had a dog, let alone a kid. It just it's not as rosy as people think. And again, in reunion, it's also not as rosy as people hope it will be. Damon, thank you very much for sharing your adversity and then really dissecting it with me and then answering my questions. And I really appreciate this rich conversation because, again, I've never talked to somebody who adopted and then their true story behind mm -hmm. it. And then I didn't realize that both sides are kind of adversities um, that were actually a triangle situation, right? The child yeah. and then the a birth, like biological parents and an adopting family. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, my son was on advertisement for adopted child role with, so he's mixed as you kind of saw, uh, but then darker skin, his adopted parents are completely Caucasian. Mm -hmm. So it was an advertisement of two Caucasian parents adopting this dark skin boy and then color, yep. um they're playing piano like doing zinga or cooking and you know on a bicycle it came out great and then i love um the actors that he worked with they're wonderful wonderful uh people they actually took my son under their wings and then actually took him to uh zip lining for real after the shoot and then <laughs> that's awesome and then my, our, um, his adopted stepmom has been such a cheerleader for his modeling career and everything. So we tell her everything. And then I feel like we actually have kind of adopted step parents. And I think in a way that imagine I am from a significant abusive family, biological father, who sexually, physically, everything like you know abused me. I escaped from him when I was thirteen, mm -hmm. and then sometimes I wonder if I was adopted, knowing that his physical violence, sexual violence, was identified. Mm. Being in that situation, had my mom had the courage to get out, and then maybe put me in adoption. Maybe I wouldn't have experienced all this trauma. Sometimes mm -hmm. I think about it, and then yeah. sometimes I think about healthier parenting how it's how is it look like and then but then there's a stigma about trying to find your biological parents and then there's a doubt but at the same time you are not abused you are not like in danger and you are in a better situation financially socially than this biological parents who are extremely abusive to yeah. a, a child. So sometimes I wonder. There's a lot in what you just said, because I've spoken to some adopted people who have been in reunion with their biological families. And more than one has said that their siblings have told them you were lucky to get out. 
dad was not awesome. Mom was awful, whatever the thing is. And there's often an expectation that an adopted person should feel gratitude for having been adopted. It's a, there's an assumption that something as extreme as what your lived experience was. And let me say, I'm so sorry that that was your lived experience. That is awful. And I'm glad you were able to get out of that. And you've gotten to a place where you can do great work like this. But it's not everybody that gets out. And there's an assumption that people should feel gra gratitude for the fact that they did. But a lot of adopted people will tell you in the grand scheme, like I would have rather been with my biological family and we would have struggled through and rescued each other versus just one of us getting out. And then we now have are at odds because one of one of us feels like the other one got lucky. And there's um, there's some anger. There's some jealousy over that escape. And and some folks will say, you know, yeah, but you I may have gotten out, but you got to grow up with mom. Right. And uh, and so there's there's a lot in there. I'm not saying that one should feel. Ungrateful and wish that they had been in an abusive relationship. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, especially when there's an opportunity for escape, I'm sure that many adopted people would say, I would have preferred if we could have all escaped together. And to be singled out, you know, I've spoken to many adoptees who were the youngest in their family. And because the family was in dire straits, they chose to not parent that last child. They were like, we've got six mouths. I can't feed a seventh, that kind of thing. And so the child, uh, the adopted person can often feel like before they meet these folks in reunion and hear that story, why was I play? I was this, the last one. Why was the baby given away? And it can be very worrisome in a person's mind to try to think through what were the scenarios that made me the adopted person versus anybody else. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot in what you said in terms of getting out, escape, gratitude, um, things along those lines. Thank you. So let's move on to another question, which is the tools that you use to overcome. So Damon, this is actually my favorite part of the podcast because <laughs> a lot of people who went through the adversity, extremely traumatic adversities, sometimes when people don't understand how traumatic the event was, they will just say, go get a therapist. Mm -hmm. And that's not really the one answer. So all of my guests had been telling me different tools, very creative tools that you, they use to overcome these adversities. So what would you say the most helpful tools that you use to overcome this adversity? Honestly, it's been my podcast, quite literally. It's been therapeutic and educational for me to sit with adopted person after adopted person on a weekly basis and hear the diversity of stories that are drastically different from mine because it's eye-opening for me to hear what these experiences can be. And it's oftentimes therapeutic for the person to open up and share their story. And it's been therapeutic for me as well, which is part of why I'm here with you. Talking about it is the therapy and the tool that I use. And the reason I say that is because what often happens, Jury, the same way you said, I've not spoken to another adopted person on this podcast. This is what happens is adopted people haven't had the opportunity to actually speak about their entire experience. And if you have had an opportunity to meet an adopted person and you ask them about their experience, it was probably what I like to call the elevator pitch version, which is I was adopted when I was a kid. I always knew I was adopted. I found my biological mother when I was 36 and we had a wonderful reunion and I found out she was working two blocks away from me and I surprised her on her birthday. I just left out an entire set of very vivid color that fills in the gaps of my story in a way that 
you didn't just experience. You would have walked away from that if I had just told you that piece of my story and said, wow, that's really interesting. How fascinating. But you would not have understood the depth of what I went through with the secondary rejection with the wrong guy that my birth mother had identified. You would not have known, for example, that I found my biological father, Bill, completely accidentally through ancestry DNA. My point in saying all of that is that when an adopted person comes to my podcast or any other show, a show like your own, they get to sit and tell the entire story. And it's often the first time that they've actually sat down and told everything that they experienced and exposed their feelings about it. And so I think it's a powerful tool to own and open up about your story because chances are you're not alone. You, jury, are not the only person who have survived, you know, sexual abuse and all kinds of and homelessness and all kinds of other life adversity. There are other people in unfortunately in your tribe and speaking out about adversity is what you're contributing to this community. And so it, it's helpful for someone else to hear you open up and, and own your life and your story. And the same thing is true with adopted people opening up and talking about their own journey. We help one another to not feel alone and we help to identify some of the issues and challenges and, and how we, we get through them. So it's, it's, it's very effective to open up and talk about it. And let me tell you one more quick thing. Your last guest, you said that you've never talked to another adopted person about adoption, but your last guest that I listened to, Adrian, is adopted. He was on my show, and he has an amazing story. I know he talked a lot about his heart attack survival, but what he didn't go into when he sat with you was he has an entire adoption reunion journey that is absolutely incredible. So um, for anybody that's interested to learn more about Adrian, he's number 132 on the Who Am I Really podcast. And I would encourage you to listen because his story is drastically different from mine. And we are only two stories in an entire universe of adopted people stories. Yeah, so I meant that I never had a guest spoke about that. Oh, I know. I know Adrian mentioned at the very end of his heart mm-hmm. attack story when um, a gift part came from the, mm-hmm. the last question of the podcast. But yeah, so probably the second. But anyways, um, the podcast, why did you start podcast? And then did you know that it's going to have so many guests and it's going to have this effect on you? And then it became a tool for you. No, I I could not have known what the podcast would turn into. I I started this five years ago in 2017. And I was literally driving down the road one day after my reunion experience with my biological mother. And I I had been having this recurring experience of sharing my reunion journey with my biological mother with other people. And occasionally I would meet another adopted person along the way. Like this was... Huge news in my life at that moment. So I was telling everybody and anybody who would hear, who would listen, I would share the details with. And periodically, I would hear someone say, oh, I'm adopted too. But my story will never turn out like yours because, and they would list the reasons. My adoptive parents don't want me to search, and they've told me so. I don't feel like I should search because I'm loyal to my adoptive parents, and I think it would really hurt them. I can't launch a search because in the state where I was born, the adoption records are completely closed, and I don't think I'll ever get the information. Um, I'm really scared that if I reach out to my biological parents, they won't want to know me, or that I'll learn I was the product of some violent crime, or that I'm not going to like these people. I've already got a family. What if we don't get along? So I started to hear all of these nuggets of reunion journeys that I had never contemplated before because mine had been very positive for me. And I realized there are a lot of adoption stories to tell. And I've taken to saying there are often awesome adoptions and awful reunions and basically 
terrible, amazing, amazing adoptions and awful reunions, whatever, you know, whatever the opposing things are. I lost my words there, but you get the point. You can have a great adoption and an awful reunion and a terrible adoption and an amazing reunion and everything in between. Some adoptions started off awful and ended up okay. And some reunions start off wonderful and end up terrible. So they evolve. And it was this connection to how drastically different every adoptee story is. Um, I could go on. You could put a you could put Damon Davis, a young black male in a white family in the Midwest. And I have a completely different story now. You can take Jury Love and put her in a family in Florida. And she now has a totally different life than she grew up with. So you start to change all of the variables, religion, age of the parents, um, whether you grew up in a homogenous fa uh, community or a very heterogeneous community, right? There are, are adoptees who are people of color who will tell you, I grew up in a predominantly white community. And it was really challenging for me because I was the only person of color that I could find. And it was pretty clear that I was living in adoption. And, and I've had a guest say, it was something that I viewed as a private part of my life that I was forced to live publicly because you could see that I was adopted. So all of that to say, um, I, I started this self-expression about my own adoption journey, and it was through that that I realized everybody's adoption journey is different and their stories are not out there. And so that was the catalyst for the podcast. And I'll say one more thing, which is the question that hit me is, when you realize that you are adopted, it becomes a question of who am I really? It's I'm I grew up as Damon Davis in the Davis family in Columbia, Maryland. But had I lived with my biological mother, I might have grown up as my birth name, Michael Anthony Sullivan, potentially living in Baltimore with her, you know, struggling to make her way with the two of us. So you can see how I might ask myself, who am I really? Where are my biological roots? And is that what I'm really supposed to have been? And who am I now as a result of what I have lived through an adoption? So there's a lot to it. And that, so that's the genesis of the podcast. And, and no, I never could have expected that it would be this, um, this adventure of talking to almost 200 people five years later. It's amazing. Wow, I am very happy that you found this tool and then decided to share the story. I believe in advocacy. I believe in telling the story. Just to tell you and then our audience 20 years ago when somebody said father the word what what does you what does your father do? I just start to break down in tears. I hide, I run. I couldn't even say anything about it. I freeze like I was frozen and that is 20 years ago and then after the therapy and then a lot of work publishing my book being a journalist advocating for other people it really is a journey but i'm very proud of myself that i'm even able to do the podcast and talk about it openly to public and then connect with some people and then my concept was to create a platform where people can talk about any kind of adversity, not just, you know, one and after, but because like you said, I think as a podcaster or somebody who can advocate their stories and others, I found it is significantly important that we as a survivor of some sort of adversity create this safe platform where people can tell their stories share the tools and what you are doing is probably rescuing some people out there who's never had this outlet or never heard of the story and maybe feeling so alone mm -hmm. and that's what my book has been doing also i've had yeah. some big victim of dv contacting me from texas virginia like i've never imagined myself getting these emails or you know just in the middle of crisis that wow and then the comment or people coming out 
to me saying I was also sexually abused, mm-hmm. which I never imagined that person to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been so powerful. So I'm very happy that you found a tool, but not only for yourself, but for other people yeah. to come out. And then being a journalist has been so empowering as well. So I just want to encourage you because otherwise not your podcast or my podcast or my publication, people wouldn't have been able to tell the story to other people. And then you never know what kind of ripple effect that you are creating out there. And then destigmatizing is difficult issues. Yeah. I appreciate that very much. And I, I would return the same comments to you. I mean, You've lived through a tremendous amount, and it goes back to what we were saying before about owning your story, right, and owning your identity once you figure that out. That's hugely important, and a lot of times folks struggle to do that because they don't know where to go. They've not heard how others have dealt with this same trauma, this same adversity, and for you to step forward and say, this is me, this is what I lived through, and I have built on my personality and my life experience to recover on the other side and admit that it was challenging, it makes it okay for other people to struggle and see a light at the end of the tunnel too and realize that this struggle can have a positive outcome. And and I, I appreciate and applaud that you are – creating this platform for people to talk about adversity as well, because these are some of the hard topics that a lot of folks don't dig into on a regular basis. And by you and I providing a place for people to come and have a safe space, as you said, and openly discuss the whole thing, it's both cathartic for them and helps a listener out there who can directly identify with elements of their story and and feel that they're not alone, even if they've never met that guest. And so I think of my podcast really is I'm just there to help other people tell their stories. This is I've told many guests, I can't do this if you don't show up to share your story. There's no show. So it's all about the guests for me. That's wonderful. I want to tell a quick heartwarming story. So I was interviewing uh, Wayne Forrest. And he is from New, New Zealand, and then he had a rugby accident 27 years ago, wheelchair bond after the accident when he had 16-month-old uh, twins. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that podcast, and somebody from Oklahoma listened to it, and they wanted to come to my show. Wow. So, yeah, Steve came, and then he shared his story of paralysis and then being disabled um by tree accident when he was 20 and but he um really worked hard to be able to walk and then participate in triathlon for the first time um with a disability so it was very great to see different parts of the world's guests talk about the adversity and then different parts of people listening and then wanting to share their story and then that is really amazing to me had that happened to you has that ever happened to you? Some of the people who listen to your podcast and then wanted to come to the podcast and got a comment and stuff. Yeah, I'll I'll get comments periodically where someone says, you know, I really identified with Joanne's story. I would love if you would connect me with her and I will reach out and say, hey, listen, I've got a listener who identifies with your story and 9.9 times out of 10. I think I'm 10 for 10 at least. I'm 100% on people saying, yes, I'd like to connect with these folks because the adoptee community is, um, <laughs> I've heard us referred to as crib mates, right? The thought that these babies are in the, we are waiting for adoption in cribs together is an, is a, is an idea that sort of creates a fraternity and sorority among us, right? That we are siblings of adoption, basically. You can identify with many elements of what adoption means to different people. And I've definitely had folks uh, reach out and say, I listened to, you know, one of your shows and I realized that I wanted to tell my story. And I used to cultivate stories by reaching out to people on Facebook. I would see in the Facebook groups, 
you know, folks were writing these long stories and I look and I would read it and I would say, this is somebody who wants to talk. They, they want to share. And I would direct message them and say, listen, I'm doing a podcast and I would love it if you would tell your story on the show. And that was how I got my initial guests was by identifying with the stories that were being expressed in other platforms to get people to open up and share their stories too. And then it just took off because I invite people at the end of my show to go to my site and, and indicate that they would like to share their adoption journey too. So it's, it's been wonderful. And I, I love that it is something that spans the globe. That's what's great about this online world that we live in is that it's not just you and I jury sitting here telling these stories to each other. It's that hundreds or thousands or millions of people could potentially hear this you know, for years and years and years to come. And, and there's a lot of healing that can be built on that kind of open sharing. And I'm, I'm really glad to be in the podcast space with people like you who are bringing these real life stories to light. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And then what is my, my last question is what is the gift that came from your adversity? <sighs> you know, I really think it is it's it's hard to articulate because it's got so many adjectives associated but it's an appreciation for your life which sounds trite but it's real like quite literally my life could have been something very different than what it is and so you appreciate both what could have been but what you are now and the life experiences that got you to this point, like I wouldn't be Damon Davis and, and the sort of person that I am today, I consider myself a, you know, loving friend and a caring person and, and empathetic to people. And I think that this journey has made me more empathetic to folks than I probably was before because I was, along this way, forced to consider my birth mother's point of view, right? It wasn't just, why, why, why was I put up for adoption? This sucks. It was, let me figure out why I was placed for adoption and understand that from her perspective. And it helped me to understand, understand other birth mothers and why they may have placed children for adoption. It helped me understand the perspective of many other adopted people. And then that same empathy muscle is something you can use in other parts of your life, right? It's, you know, recognizing people who are challenged by homelessness and sexual abuse and, and um, mental health issues and, you know, substance abuse, sort of recognizing that they just didn't wake up and this was their problem one day. Like this was developed over time. And, and recognizing that, you know, people need help to fight their way out of situations and to navigate these situations. I think the gift has really been sort of a significantly deeper empathy than I probably would have had if I hadn't spoken to 180 plus adopted people. So deeper empathy, I would say, is, is the gift. I've never heard of empathy muscle. <laughs> We've got a muscle for everything, you know, it's what, it's what you exercise and you build it up, right. And you build it to be stronger in my opinion. And, and empathy, I think is something that you can do. There's a lot of folks that aren't that great at empathizing with others. And, uh, fortunately I feel like that is definitely something I've, I've built over time. Wow. Thank you so much. Amon, I truly appreciate you coming to a gift from adversity today. Thanks and for having me. Yes, absolutely. I want to ask you if somebody out there is going through what you went through, what is your biggest advice that you can give? My advice is find community because feeling like you're traversing something alone makes it that much more daunting, more challenging. Um, but knowing that you've got a support network, a team, a therapist, a community is incredibly valuable. 
and it's not to be taken lightly. We don't go through this life journey solo. There's not a single thing that any of us have done. You didn't learn to walk by yourself. You didn't make it through high school by yourself. You haven't done anything. Get a job, you know, learn a skill. Someone taught you, helped you, supported you, guided you, gave you advice, direction. And um, and that's part of how community can be really valuable to folks. And it's no different in adoption that adoptees can often feel alone because it's not always the kind of thing you can see and identify someone and be like, oh, I should talk to them about their adoption. You couldn't see that on me if I was walking down the street. But there are Facebook groups and podcasts, vlogs and blogs, and all kinds of expressions of how adoptees are talking about their adoption journey. And I suggest people reach out and try to find that stuff and um, and join. You might need to just listen at first to see where your lived experience fits into the mix. See who you identify with. And then maybe start to express yourself or you may come out guns blazing like I got something to tell you and I'm I'm going to post and vlog all about it. Go for it, man. Like do your thing, but um, but own it and find community that's supportive of you so that you don't feel like you're going through this alone. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again. And I just wanted to tell you that you are my number 70. This is episode 70 i'm celebrating myself and appreciating all of the 70 guests who came to a gift university so far starting this year january so i truly appreciate you coming here sharing your story and possibly helping someone out there that can maybe learn something from our podcast today I hope so, too. Thanks so much for having me, Jury. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thank you to our listeners. And I have more wonderful guests coming to a podcast lined up. So stay tuned and have a great night.